From Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds. On this episode, I interview Rachel Clearwater. She is a biology instructor in Canada, and she tells us about Canada in the coronavirus pandemic. Also, on this episode, there's some good news. This week, we focus on the good news around the world and not COVID-19 news. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and this is News Nerds. This week's book nook pick is the book The Westing Game by Ellen Raskin. This book won the Newbery Medal for Best Children's Book of the Year. This clever book is about Sunset Towers, a new apartment building overlooking Lake Michigan. The apartments are being sold by a clever businessman named Barney Northrup. The apartments give a view of the Westing Mansion owned by the man Sam Westing. In the beginning of the Westing game, Sam Westing is found dead in bed in the mansion, which has not been lived in for years. As if by coincidence, most of the Sunset Tower dwellers are heirs to Sam Westing. Instead of a normal will, the heirs have to solve a tricky riddle embedded in the book, and you are one of the only people that can look at all the clues. Sam Westing says in the will that he was murdered by one of the heirs, and their job is to find the murderer. Each of the eight pairs gets $10,000 to use while solving the riddle and some pieces of paper with clues. In the end of the book, the riddle is solved and lots of other madness happens. In Santa Ana, California, a woman was walking the streets when she saw an elderly street vendor selling tamales. She gave the man food and $5 as she listened to the man's story. The street vendor, Don Huel, said that nobody wanted to hire him because of his old age. He started selling tamales made by another woman. He would get a portion of the earnings every day. Don Huel could buy food, but not a phone or medicine that he needed. The 38 year old woman who listened to a story named Kenya wanted to help the man, so she asked on Instagram for some help helping this man. Just in a week, she had raised $84,000 in donations. Kenya purchased a new wheelchair for Don and new shoes. Don Huel says he feels like he is 40 now. He says this event was life-changing. In just a second, we're going to go to my interview with Rachel Clearwater. But first, a message from me and then the latest good news. listeners it's Ezra here I just want to tell you that news nerds is supported by its listeners and subscribers if you know somebody that would love news nerds please share it with them thank you so much 
And now for the latest good news. George A. Hearn, a man from Washington, heard about farmers that could not sell produce and were giving it all away. This opportunity let him later rescue about 200 tons of vegetables that arrived in food banks to support people that need food. He did not have a truck that he could haul the food in, so he asked on Facebook if anyone could spare a truck for the journey. This truck would haul 2,000 pounds of onions and potatoes. People on Facebook responded quickly, and soon George Ahorn had four trucks and two trailers. Over the process of getting the vegetables to food banks in Washington, the trucks and trailers had held 9.3 tons of this food grown in the east, which George hauled into the west. People volunteered to help George Ahern and donated boxes so that food banks could accept the food. Dr. Rachel Clearwater, a biology instructor in Canada, joins us for News Nerds. Welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us about yourself, first of all? Sure. Um, let's see. Well, I'm a biologist and I am mostly an ecologist and an environmental biologist. And currently I'm a biology instructor at Capilano University, but I've also done work in environmental consulting for develop big development projects. And I spent many years uh, teaching uh, ecology for a study abroad program that traveled around the world with university students teaching them about the global ecology. So you live in Canada, and I'm going to get to more of coronavirus boringness questions in a little bit, but here's my okay. next question. Can you tell me about your previous jobs and what your favorite mo moments from those? Okay, so yeah, jobs that I've done have all been related to, to biology. So a lot of that has been teaching, just teaching in normal university classrooms, but also teaching for study abroad programs. So traveling and, and teaching. So one program that I taught for, for many years, it was called uh, the International Honors Program. And that program took students that travel to travel all around the world and we'd go to five different countries over the course of an academic year and learn about their culture and uh, social justice issues and environmental issues as well. So there was lots of exciting moments from, from doing that, that kind of work. We got to meet lots of families and lots of activists and people trying to do good things to improve the environment and to make the world uh, a better place for people so there was lots of exciting things that we did and learned about there let's see it's hard to pick like what is the one most ex exciting moment but one day that really stands out in in my memory uh, was when i was doing some research some biological research as a university student and i was working in irian jaya which is the western uh, which is an island in indonesia so like Papua New Guinea is one side of the island and then Irian Jaya is the other. And we were doing some research on bowerbirds there. So this is back in the 1990s. And we were up in these mountains called the Arafak Mountains. And a plane was supposed to come and pick us up, but I guess that they forgot to come and get us. And so we waited like a week for them to come and get us and they never came. So then we decided that we had to hike out. So we got up really early in the morning and then we hiked like about 20 miles to hike down this mountain and out to the to the 
to the coast where we could get a boat back. And so we had to do this big hike all day and we had to go through just amazing landscapes. We had to go up mountains and we had to get people to take us in little canoes when, when there was a, a lake to cross. And then we hiked all the way down this mountain and we went through all these different villages as we went down the mountain. And in Irianjai, they have competitions of who can have the most beautiful village. And so it was just a whole day of going through different villages and they were, the, each one was kind of more beautiful than the, than the last one. And it was a really remote area. So a lot, a lot of people there, the kids had like never seen a white person before. And so it was exciting for us and everyone got excited when these just researchers came marching, marching through their, their little villages. So that was a really fun day. What does a normal day look like at your home in Canada? Okay, so I live in in, uh, in British Columbia. We live in, in Vancouver. We live near a place called Horseshoe Bay. And so I have a family. So I live with my husband, Pete, and my two kids, Declan and Asher, and they're 10 and 9. And so a normal day for us, like not during coronavirus, and a normal day, yeah, so a normal day during the school year. You know, we get up in the morning and then the kids walk to school. Usually I walk to school with them so I can walk, walk the dog. That school's like a block away. And then I go to work, usually at Capilano University and teach biology all day. Then my husband stays home with the, with the kids and I come home after work. And we like to play board games. So we usually play like King of Tokyo or King Domino or something. Game that we like or Dutch Blitz. And we like to go for walks with our dog. And there's a lot of beaches around where we live. So we walk to the beach or we go on, what else do we do? And I like to work in the garden. Um, How have you and your family, uh, or how have you specifically been throughout the coronavirus pandemic this year? Well, I think it's been pretty... We've had it pretty easy, I would say, so far. It's it was really shocking when it first happened. So back in March, March twelfth is when we started to make like major major changes because of the because of the coronavirus. That's when the schools all shut down, and my university went totally online. So I went from teaching in person to teaching to teaching online, um, and that's when we started to do kind of voluntary lockdown. So I, during that time, I, I was quite nervous and I had like a lot of anxiety. I remember waking up with a really tight chest every morning, just worrying about what was, what was going to happen. But then as we got more used to it and used to living in a socially distanced way and used to staying apart from, from other people and just connecting online, um, then it started to feel, feel more normal. One of my mom's neighbors, she lives close by, she... She, well, well, at the time she was living on Eagle Island, which is a little island that's just about a, a mile away from where we are. Um, and one of her neighbors was one of the first people to get COVID-19. In BC, there was a big dental conference in, in Vancouver, and a lot of cases came from that, from that dental conference. One of the people that had a booth at the dental conference had COVID-19, and they spread it to, to quite a few people. So that was, back in, that was back in March. It wasn't the first case, but it was one of the early, early cases. But since then, we haven't known anybody personally who, who's gotten sick. It hasn't really directly affected us. Yeah. How have your family members been in the coronavirus and specifically some of your older family members? Yeah. Well, my parents, my, my parents are in their late 70s. 
and they have health conditions like heart disease and my dad has dementia. And so we were really worried about them and, but they did a really good job of staying home and staying away from other people. So we would go and just visit them through their windows. They actually just bought a house next door to us. And so now all my family lives within kind of one block from, of each other. My sis, one sister's up the hill from us. She's about five houses away. And my other sister is about five houses away in the other direction. So their families uh, live close by. So we can always go and visit my parents and just visit in the garden or visit outside. And now we're, we're all part of one bubble. And so we, we have dinners and stuff together now. But in the beginning, we were being very, very careful and, and staying away. And that was hard because my dad, having Alzheimer's, he has to have caregivers that come in during the day to look after him. And when that started, then you couldn't have any caregivers anymore. So it's been like a lot of work for my mom because she has to sort of single-handedly take care of my, of my dad. What does the country of Canada and your local area look like in the COVID-19 pandemic right now? Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's looking a lot better. So in BC, it's, it's different across Canada. The provinces have been taking sort of individual responses depending on what's happening with the, with the pandemic. So in BC, we had, we've had like a four phase approach. So when it first started back in March, uh, we went into phase one. And in phase one, there was no traveling. People were encouraged to stay home. They made an order that you couldn't get together with more than 50 people ever. So, you know, big concerts or parties, those were all out. And then they closed down a bunch of businesses then, like restaurants that weren't takeout or hair salons, personal services, but things where you couldn't socially distance, those were all closed down in phase one. And that's when the schools were mostly closed, not completely closed. They always had the schools for the kids of essential workers. And they closed the parks and then they, they closed the border and they didn't let people. And if you were coming back from, interna from international travel, you had to self-quarantine for 14 days. So all those things happened in phase one and phase one lasted until June, I guess. Yeah. So in June, then we went to phase two and phase two, there was a slow opening of things. So then uh, they could open some restaurants as long as you could do physical distancing. There was still, you were still encouraged in phase two, you're still encouraged to mostly stay close to home, not go away to your cabins or travel even in around BC. And then we went into phase three, which, yeah, so like, let's see, wait, phase one was March until May. Yeah. And then phase two was May through almost to the end of June. And then at the end of June, we went into phase three, which is when you're allowed to now, you're allowed to travel around like within the country. But still, if you go international, you have to come, you have to self-quarantine for 14 days when you come back. And, you know, more stores and things are, are open, it's getting more back to normal. It's summer now, so the schools aren't in, in session, but they're, they're planning to, to have the kids all go back to school in the fall. They'll be in like learning groups, of, so you'll only interact with like 60 other kids in the school. So not all the school kids will all be together, but just they'll be in, in kind of smaller, smaller groups. So they do like a lot of tracing contact tracing is so that if you've been exposed to somebody who has COVID-19, then they'll, they'll call you and you'll have to quarantine for, for a little while. So it's kind of a little bit getting back to get, getting back to normal and we're getting more used to it, but there's still certainly restrictions. You're still not allowed to uh, have any gatherings of more than 50 people. 
from what you told me about Canada right now, I have two questions. The first one is, how have your kids been doing in online schooling in the, in the spring? How did they do? And did they like that or did they absolutely hate it? I think they, they liked it because they both had teachers who were pretty good at really, it was such a rapid transition. You know, one week they're in school and then it was spring break and then over spring break, all the schools went to be originally totally online. They had teachers that did like a lot of Zoom meetings and gave them fun projects to do at home. You know, we were both parents were home so we could help them with their, with their different projects. And so that was good. And then in June, the schools opened up again for anybody that wanted to go back, that felt comfortable going back. And our kids felt comfortable going back. So they went into the classrooms where they did social distancing in the classroom. So there would only be like eight kids in a classroom and they would only go two days a week and the rest would be online. So they really liked that because that was a combination of getting to see some friends in school and then also getting to do some work at home uh, as well. I think they were good. They play a lot of video games like Fortnite so that they can talk to their friends on online and that's how they connect. It's really quite different from the U.S. because we, we didn't get to go back to school. You have an, a cabin out on Gambier Island that's really very close to you. Have you been getting to go there or has the coronavirus pandemic affected that in any way? Well, we couldn't go there when we were in phase one, because in phase one, and that was like March through, through May, then everyone was supposed to try and stay as close to home as possible. So we didn't go there. Um, and then a lot of, some of our friends went up there in phase two, so in, in May. And those were our, our friends that were up there. They were friends that had like health concerns, like kids who had health issues and they were really, really careful to self-quarantine. So we let them just have their own little bubble up there. And we didn't go up until starting uh, in phase in phase three at the, at the end of June. But now we go up and, and, and down. But mostly people just meet in small groups up there and they don't, it's not, it's not uh, as social as it usually is. What do you think caused the U.S. to see a dramatically higher number of coronavirus cases than Canada this year? Well, I think there's a, there's a number of things that maybe maybe contributed to the U.S. having having higher numbers than than Canada and and you know higher numbers than what we're seeing in in BC. I think that something that really helped. Canada to get on top of the COVID-19 crisis is that we have universal health care. So our health care isn't tied to having um, health insurance through, through a job. Everybody just right. automatically has it. And so that means that it's organized. The response for the pandemic is organized by the federal government and it, they can, you know, really roll out large scale programs and make it clear and available for everyone. And that really helps in a pandemic. So you know, everybody can get a test for free and you know, you can get, they could really clear out the hospitals. You know, they, they in phase one, they stopped all non-emergent, non-essential sur uh, surgeries. And so the hospitals were really empty and there was a lot of space for treating any COVID-19 patients. So I think those things really helped. And then in Canada, it really, the government really worked not to politicize it. They really worked together. You know, so in Canada, 
we have like liberals and conservatives. Those are the same as Republicans and, and Democrats. Yeah. And they were very cooperative and very supportive uh, of each other. Even politicians who are normally you know, at each other's throats and, and really against each other, they were complimenting each other and trying to be supportive. Um, and then the government mostly really stayed out. The politicians really stayed out of the, the response. So our public health officers, so we have a federal public health, health officer, Teresa Tam. And in BC, we have uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry is our public health officer. And they've been in charge of, of the response. So they do press conferences every day and tell us what's going on and tell us what the orders are and what they what they want us to do and they speak directly to the to the people it doesn't go through the politicians and the politicians they just work on coming up with like the programs that are going to help people out like the federal aid programs to help people and businesses make it through the the pandemic so i think those things have worked really well not politicizing it you know, really focusing on the science. So the public health officers are doctors and they really make the decisions based on, on the scientific evidence. So those things and then having universal health care makes it a lot easier to respond. But you know, our, we've had a lot of trouble too. We had really big outbreaks in our long-term care facilities. So 80, over 80% of the deaths that have happened in Canada because of COVID-19 have been for old, old people who were in long-term care. So that's been a, been a really, really tragic. So different from the United States. And we just talked about this a little bit, but in your opinion, do you feel that the leadership in Canada has made a difference in Canada's COVID-19 situation? De definitely, you know, I think in, and particularly in BC, so I told you that Dr. Bonnie Henry is our public health officer and she has done a really amazing job because she worked uh, in on on uh, different Ebola outbreaks in the past so she has a lot of uh, experience dealing with epidemics and we also had a, a smaller scale uh, epidemic in Canada back in I think 2003 we had a SARS epidemic and so that helped us get some experience you know like there were there was like 400 cases, I think, of SARS and, and 44 deaths from SARS then. And, but people were really concerned because that was a very deadly, deadly disease. And based on that experience back in 2003, there was a lot of systems that were put in place and to prepare for, for a bigger epidemic like this COVID-19 pandemic. So having that experience and having Dr. Bonnie Henry be our leader and her having this experience really helped. And one thing that she knew from her experience is that you can't force people to do things. You have to get everybody on side and they have to do things voluntarily. So she really works hard to just commute to ask people rather than demand people do things. Her the motto that she is always repeating is uh, be kind, be calm, be safe. And so that's what she wants people to to do and it's it sounds kind of schmaltzy but it's it really it really works you know she's a very empathetic person when the first person in bc died from covid-19 she cried during the press conference and each death she is you can see that she feels it and she feels so much empathy and so much sadness about this this pandemic so she really humanizes it and she she never shames 
people and she never orders people to do things. She just tells people what's going on and requests that they do what they need to do, social distance. And she's so understanding to people. You know, she understands that people, you know, young people really want to be getting together and enjoying the summer. And she expresses her understanding of that and then asks people to just keep doing the things that they that they need to do, hand washing and social distancing and only gathering in, in small groups. And that just really works. People really uh, like her and they really listen to her. People have made up t-shirts with Bonnie Henry's face on them. And they somebody started a, a beer that is the Bonnie Henry blonde lager. And they've made lots of people make bonnie henry things and then sell them and then they use the money that they earn she donates it to to charities that she chooses she's also really concerned about uh, the opioid crisis in in canada and so all the money that's raised from selling bonnie henry henry things goes to goes to good causes like crisis relief causes do you think that the U.S.-Canada border will stay closed until 2021 because of the United States rising cases in the West and along the border? Yeah, I don't know what will happen, but I know that the public is really, there's a lot of public pressure to keep the border closed, but, you know, we... The U.S. is our biggest trading partner, and it's important for lots of businesses to be able to trade with the U.S. So I think uh, our politicians are getting pressure from U.S. politicians to open the border sooner. So I don't know. I think politicians are kind of in a hard place. The public is scared to open the borders because they can see that there's higher numbers in in certain places in, in the U.S. So uh, I don't know what would happen. I think it would stay closed or just have a... Uh, I think it would likely stay closed until the next year, but who knows what's going to happen? Who knows when a vaccine is going to be, be ready uh, or they might just, you know, loosen the border, not, uh, you know, let more and more different groups, groups through. But I think it's pretty likely that it will, that it will stay closed in some form until there's a, until there's a vaccine or until next year. Do you feel that Canada's fight against the coronavirus is somewhat over, or do you feel that Canada still needs to take more steps against battling COVID-19? Oh, yeah, no, I think we, until there's a vaccine, we have to keep up doing what we're doing. So basically, in, in this phase, we're having like 60% of our normal contacts, if it wasn't in the, in the pandemic, and that maintaining that level is kind of just keeping our curve flat of of new cases but you know this week things have and in bc things have started our numbers have gone up uh, a little bit so i think we just have to keep being uh really vigilant we definitely don't feel like we're totally on top of it and, and out of the woods you know everyone is concerned about what's going to happen in the fall what's going to happen when the kids go back to school full-time, what's going to happen in cold and flu season. So they, yeah, there's a lot of unknown. People are still concerned. They definitely are taking it really, really seriously and don't feel like we're, we're out of the woods or that, or that it's over by any means. You know, they see this as we're going to be doing this for the, for the long haul until there's a vaccine. There'll be lots of hand washing, lots of social distancing, lots of uh, not seeing very many people, lots of not traveling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
cases in Montana have been going up very much. Um, so here's my ne next question. What are your favorite <laughs> activities and have those activities been put on hold because of the global pandemic? Yeah. Well, a lot of, luckily, a lot of the stuff that we love to do, like hiking and, and boating and like swimming in the ocean, those are all things that you can keep, keep doing. We like skiing in the winter and the ski hills all closed down in March, but hopefully they'll be able to open again next year. You know, my, my cousin is a musician and there's just no more big music concerts and stuff. So I think his, his life has really changed and I really miss not that I went to many <laughs> concerts, but I missed the opportunity to go and, and hear music and go to, you know, theaters and, and hear people talk in theaters or go, go to those, those sorts of things. So I will look forward to doing those things. But mostly the things I really like to do are generally things being out in nature and you can still do that. This is Dr. Rachel Clearwater. He joined us over Zoom today for News Nerds. Thank you so much for being here and telling us about Canada and your life. Thank you so much, Ezra. Thanks for interviewing me. It's nice to talk to you, and I wish you guys all the best. And I know you guys are going to get it, get this COVID-19 thing under control. <laughs> some music for a geographic location challenge. With first place, we have California with 7% of News Nerds listeners. And with second place, we have Ohio with 5%. And third place, we have two runners-up, Connecticut and New Mexico. Behind them, we have Florida with 2%, Utah, Virginia, Vermont, New York, Oregon, Alaska, New Jersey, Minnesota, Texas, and the District of Columbia. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. Thank you, Rachel Clearwater, for being on this week's episode. If you want to get news nerdy this week, just go to our website. Again, I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and you are listening to News Nerds. We'll be back next week with even more great content. <laughs>